Well, hey everyone, I'm Genevieve, recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And for those of you who knew, I have made it safely to Raleigh, North Carolina. And the decor behind me is a whole bunch of moving boxes. But I am here, happy to be here, and happy to be here tonight. So tonight, I'm going to be talking about the chapter that is probably the least studied in the text section and like the one that people skip over all the time called two employers. And whenever I do this talk, I like to call it two employers. It's not just for bosses, because there are so many just really awesome spiritual principles in here for all of us. I think it's really rich. So I just decided that, you know, Never mind the title, we're going to go for it anyway. So if you have your big books, um, the chapter starts on page 136. And I'm just going to point out some spiritual principles here that I think are really cool. Um, oh, just a second. My daughter just got into University of Alabama. Yay. Okay, I'll talk to you later. Thank you for telling me. Okay. Um, okay. See, if I was doing the family afterwards, it would have been good because then I could have done a whole segue into how, you know, how our family life changes and how my daughter, she got into one place last week and now just now another one and she couldn't wait to tell me and things were not always like that. So this program really does um, produce miracles, not just in removing the food obsession, but as our book says, in reunited families. So um, I'm going to start on page 137. And if you want to hear more about the family afterwards, Melissa talked about it last week. So there's a recording on our website or on Podbean. Okay, page 137. Um, the writer of this chapter talks about three employees he had who committed suicide. Um, they were alcoholics. And he says, what irony, I became an alcoholic myself, and but for the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. So I have a couple thoughts on that sentence, but for the understanding, the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. So I would say we have to be an understanding person. We have to be that person who's understanding. Well, what does it mean to be understanding? Does it mean just to be nice? Um, I had a bunch of really nice sponsors my first six years in OA. I can think of one in particular. Um, her name was, it, some, it started with a K and she was the sweetest person ever. It did me no good. She may have been understanding, understood what I was going through, but she didn't know how to offer me a solution. So it would be like if you came to me and you told me that, you know, you, you developed, I don't know, some illness. I could be understanding and empathize with you, but I'm not a doctor. I couldn't tell you what medication you needed to take to recover. So to be an understanding person, I think requires two things. And this, we talk about this over and over care or love for the other person. And love just means um, caring about the other person's well-being and correct information. We need to understand what this illness is 
and how to recover from it. Um, but I would add to this because he says, but for the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. And I say in the um, what it says earlier on in the chapter, there is a solution, but for the grace of God, there would have been more. So there could be someone who understands all about this illness and all about how to work the 12 steps. But if there is no God to do a rewiring of my heart and kick out the obsession for food, it doesn't matter how understanding or kind or knowledgeable other people are, because ultimately it's God who comes in and removes this obsession. All these 12 steps do is put us in the path so that God can remove the obsession. It's like, if I want to, um, I don't live in, when I lived in New Jersey, if I wanted to go into New York, um, I could cross the street and wait for the, I think it was the 49A to take me into New York. Now I didn't take myself into New York, but if I didn't stand by that bus stop, I could never expect to get into New York. So these 12 steps, I guess, put us at, at the bus stop of God's grace. Okay, if we um, flip over to page 138 and they say, you know, there really hasn't been a lack of patience and tolerance on the part of our employees, or we could say on the part of our fill in the blanks, our husbands, our kids, our friends. Um, it says, and we who have imposed on the best employers can scarcely blame them if they've been short with us. So I think that's really interesting that if people are short with me, I have to ask myself, have I imposed on them? Have I asked them to do things for me that um, I could do for myself? Have I imposed by asking them to ignore the harms that I've caused them? That's imposing on other people. Um, I mean, sometimes people are short with us for no reason, right? If I don't get a lot of sleep, I confess I may be short with someone um, and it's not their fault, but we should always ask ourselves if people aren't treating us well, what did we do to deserve it? Sometimes nothing, but often something. And then we can see it, um, discuss it with someone else, go to God, make amends, and then the relationship gets better. As you just saw from exhibit A who walked in this room a few minutes ago. Um, okay, then another principle, put in the time. The writer of this chapter who I believe, but I'm not sure was Bill Wilson says that um, he was friends with an officer of a large banking institution. And the guy was talking to him about an executive at the bank who drank. And he said, this seemed to me like an opportunity to be helpful. So I spent two hours, two hours, that's a lot of time. That's not just take two food plans and call me in the morning. It's a lot of time. Two hours talking about alcoholism, the malady, and describe the symptoms and results as well as I could. So what did, he what did he talk about? The malady of alcoholism. And again, this is different than something else. If someone has pneumonia, I don't have to sit there and not that I even could, but talk about the different bacteria or virus or whatever it was. Couldn't, couldn't do it, right? Um, but, and it's not necessary. I don't need to understand the biology of pneumonia. All I have to do is take the penicillin. 
But yet for us, our recovery requires that we understand the malady, that we understand kind of the genesis of the illness. And what is it? I'm not talking about what caused it, like our, you know, our childhood or whatever. No. And by the way, if we're curious, the big book says that selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of the illness. So I don't have to look, have to look any further than my own mirror to see what caused it. But the malady, like, what is it? And what it is, is an obsession with food stronger than my mental ability to control. You know, that my memory, which protects me in other situations, which protects me from getting sunburned because I got sunburned once and I remember to put on sunscreen. It didn't work when it came to food. I couldn't remember the horrible binge hangovers with enough force to stop me from doing it again. So we talk about the malady, the symptoms and the results, the solution. He's Now he's just talking to an employer. He's not even talking to an addict and he put in two hours. And unfortunately this employer said, yeah, don't worry. The guy I'm talking about, he just had a leave of abstinence. He looks great. And to clinch the matters, the board of directors told him this was his last chance. So what tactic did the employer here try to use? Fear, right? Fear of losing your job. Well, what we've learned in this book, right, in chapter five, is that fear doesn't work. It, Bill Wilson talked about it. Fear sobered me for a bit. Well, why? Um, my problem is lack of power. So what my solution, the book tells me, is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. And they talk about that power as God, as the individual understands God. Well, fear can't give me any power to overcome the illness. Um, you know, again, who, who would ever go to someone who had cancer and say, you know, if you don't make your cancer cells stop multiplying, you're going to be in big trouble. And the person said, thanks for letting me know. Now I'll make my cancer cells stop multiplying. Never, never happened. Um, because the this disease we have, and it's a disease and illness, is a disease of lack of power. So fear can't be the solution. Our solution has to be finding a power source. And again, if anyone is interested, Melissa and I have tons of podcasts on our website or call us or call someone else, and we're happy to go through it. Um, so what Bill says, I'm assuming it's Bill. If I'm wrong, someone just tell me. Um, he said, the only answer I could make is if the man followed the usual pattern, he would go on a bigger bus than ever. Because just like in a physical illness, we can kind of um, project the progression of it, right? Cancer untreated is fatal. They say this illness, what happens is the binges get stronger and stronger and closer and closer together. When I came around, I was binging and purging twice a week. Six years later, I was binging and purging up to six times a day. It progresses. And Bill said, if he has this, it's inevitable that he would progress. And he's telling this employer, like, please. He said, I've had nothing to drink for three years. 
and this in the face of difficulties that would have made nine out of 10 men drink their heads off. So what Bill is really saying here is that it never has to do with circumstances. Um, I was in recovery when I had a double miscarriage, walked my mom through Alzheimer's and then lost her. Um, you know, some hard stuff in my life and I didn't pick up. But before I got into recovery, you know, someone could look at me cross-eyed or it could rain on a day when I wanted it to be sunny and that would be an excuse for picking up. So I think a good principle for us to, to all know is that it never has to do with circumstances. If someone picks up 100% of the time, it's because there's a problem with the spiritual recovery. There's a problem with my spiritual condition. So Bill gives a sigh. It's like, he really wants to help this guy, but he says there was nothing to do but wait. Sometimes if someone isn't ready, all we can do is wait and pray. We can always pray. And he says, the man did get drunk again and he was fired. And he said, without much ado, the man who was fired accepted the principles and procedures that had helped us without much ado because he was at bottom. He was desperate. And these are the people we want to work with. These are the people who get better. So what are the principles and procedures that helped? Well, I would say the procedures, probably the 12 steps, working them through one, two, three, in order. And the spiritual principles are throughout this book. We have um, a listing on our website of Karen went through the book and made a list of all the spiritual principles in the big book. And they're on our website. But principles like honesty, self-sacrifice, putting the welfare of others ahead of our own. And he says, this is what we need to do. So he said, Bill said that this incident illustrated to him the lack of understanding as to what really ails the alcoholic and lack of knowledge as to what part employers, or we could say sponsors, might profitably take in salvaging them, okay? what What's the problem? And the problem is our memory fails to hold us in check and we have no power against the first compulsive bite. And the solution is establishing a relationship with God so that he comes in and removes the obsession. So then they go and tell the employer that, you know, you won't understand this if you're a hard drinker, a moderate drinker, or a teetotaler, that you may have some strong opinions and prejudices. And these are people who can all stop if they really want to. There are people um, who are told your health is in jeopardy. You need to stop. My husband was told probably about 20 years ago, you need to lose some weight because you have high blood pressure. My husband said, okay. He lost the weight and he's kept it off. And if it ever creeps up a little bit, he'll just do this weird thing called cutting back. And then he'll just like lose all his weight. He was a, a moderate eater, um, but a real compulsive eater. I will tell you, I met a woman once and she was diabetic. I met her at an OA convention and her doctor told her if she didn't stop, it would affect her eyes. It would affect her kidneys. When I met her, she was getting dialysis and had a seeing eye dog because she was blind. A real compulsive eater cannot stop because of fear. Um, 
So let me go. Page 140, it tells us, and I think this is something we can use as sponsors. Can you discard the feeling that you're dealing only with habit, with stubbornness, or a weak will, right? If someone can't get it, isn't understanding it, it's really easy to just say, oh, they have a bad habit. They're stubborn or they're weak. Uh-uh. We said, no, no, it's an illness. And again, we need empathy for the people we're trying to help. And it says, if you concede that your employee is ill, can he be forgiven for what he has done in the past? Can his past absurdities be forgotten? And, you know, I think we've all heard that expression, forgive and forget. Um, but they really want us to put it into practice. So what that means is, I mean, obviously I can't make myself forget. That's kind of asking something not in my power, right? I can't forget something, but I can act as if it doesn't matter. I cannot hold it against the person. I can't keep it in my back pocket for that day in the future when I know they're gonna do something bad to me and I'll bring out this thing that I've already forgiven them for. That's unfair. And unfairness is a defect of character that we don't wanna have. Okay, um, page 140, bottom of 140, top of 141, it says when drinking, or getting over about an alcoholic, sometimes the model of honesty when normal will do incredible things. Afterwards, his revulsion will be terrible, right? We've all experienced that. We've binged and afterwards we felt really awful. I'll never do this again. But again, that's like someone, a cancer patient coming back from the doctor, hearing that her numbers were bad and saying, I'll never let a cancer cell multiply again. We are powerless. So yes, we may feel guilty about it. That does nothing. And by the way, it's not like God gives us extra points for how guilty we feel. It's not true. That's nowhere in this book. Um, in fact, it says in chapter six, we're not supposed to be over remorseful because that diminishes my usefulness to others. If I'm beating myself up over something bad I did, all, who am I focusing on? Me. And that's not humility to think, oh, I'm so bad, I do such horrible things. It's really self-centeredness. We all do horrible things sometimes. We discuss it with someone else. We ask God to forgive us. We make amends and we move on and try to be useful. So continuing on 141, it says, it talks about, they're talking to the employer about, okay, what if, you know, he, he's imposing on you. And it says, some people will try to take advantage of your kindness. If you are sure your man doesn't want to stop, he may as well be discharged the sooner the better. And I would say that this applies to sponsors. If you are sure, that's the operative word, sure, like positive, he doesn't want to stop. Don't keep working with him. And so you may ask the question, well, how do you know? How can we know if someone um, doesn't want to? And here's what I would say. Are they doing every single thing you ask them to? If you ask them to go to, I'm just not saying everyone should. I'm just saying what, what a sponsor might re require. Let's say you tell them um, to go to a meeting a day and you ask them, they say, yeah, I only went to four meetings last week or to make two phone calls a day. Yeah, I only made one and she didn't answer and that was it. Is that someone who really wants to stop? 
Because if we go back to our person with cancer, how do we know they want to stop? The doctor prescribes a treatment and you better believe that person is gonna follow that treatment to the letter. So that's how we know. And if someone doesn't, I'll tell you what I do with my sponsees. If they say, yeah, no, I didn't make the call. I say, or I didn't do something you asked. I explain to them that page 58 of the big book gives a qualification for someone who's entitled to a sponsor. And it says, if you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. So I say, if you're not willing to go to any lengths, the big book tells me that I, I'm not allowed to sponsor you. So again, not condemning them or criticizing them. It's just, um, I, that's my interpretation of the big book that I'm not allowed to sponsor someone who isn't um, willing to go to any lengths. And that's someone who doesn't want to stop or someone who says, yeah, I really don't want to stop. Um, they probably wouldn't show up at any kind of 12-step meeting. But if someone says, I don't want to stop, we're not supposed to try to persuade them. And again, um, Bill talks about his own past. And he said, if I had been fired and then presented with the solution in this book, I might have returned to them six months later, a well man. So anyone who's here today, if you're in the food, six months from today, you can be a well person. And in fact, in Bill's story, he talks about Ebby, the man who came to 12-step him. And it was only two months from the day he was about to be locked up for, for alcoholism. So two months from today, August, October something or other, um, we can all be in a state of recovery, helping other people. And they say, okay, many men want to stop. And with them, you can go far. Your understanding treatment of their cases will pay dividends. Understanding treatment, again, love, empathy, and correct information. So page 142, and we can apply some of this to sponsoring. It says, he can be assured you do not attend to lecture, moralize or condemn. And I would say this as a sponsor, we don't lecture. We don't go on and on about why they should or shouldn't do something. We don't moralize. So we don't put things in, you know, you're a bad person if you do this. And for sure, we don't condemn. We don't do that because if I'm lecturing, moralizing or condemning, then um, I'm at the top of a hilltop, you're at the bottom. And if I'm at the top, there's only one way to go. And, you know, I'll probably land on my butt when I get there. So we don't want to do that. And it says, if possible, express a lack of hard feeling toward him. Why? Why do we have to do that? And I think the answer is because people need to feel cared for. I've had sponsors who were, you know, really loving. And I've had sponsors who were really tough. And again, the main thing that counts is the quality of the information, um, but it's easier to be forthcoming with someone when we feel cared for. It's just easier. I mean, I've been honest with sponsors who were really tough, but it was like shaking in my boots, honest. Um, I did it because I had to, but um, it was a lot harder than when I felt cared for. In fact, right before this meeting, I was talking to Melissa and I, you know, did a 10 step and I just, at the end of it, it's like, 
I was really prideful and I was selfish. And here's another area where I see myself, you know, getting into pride, being prideful. And I just want to call myself out on it. And it was easy to do because I know she loves me and she's not going to judge me. And that's how we want to be. We want to, yes, hold people accountable, but in a loving way. Okay, so it says then the employer should ask, will he take every step, submit to anything to get well, to stop drinking forever? Um, if he temporizes, and I looked that word up because I didn't know what it means, and it says temporarily adopt a particular course of action, like avoid making a real commitment. If he temporizes, no. And even if he says, yes, I'm willing, it says, we believe a man should be thoroughly probed on these points. Be satisfied he's not deceiving himself or you. Sometimes people think they're willing to go to any lengths, but they're really not. So it's ha it does happen that we start working with people and you know, we get a certain way through the steps and they say, no, uh, I'm really not willing, but it's better to find it out early on. So how can we do that? A couple of ways. Um, what the founders did, and they talk about in working with others, says, give them a copy of the book. And by the time you've made your second visit, he has read this volume and says he is prepared to go through with this program of recovery. So that's one thing. You can hand someone the book and ask them to read the first 164 pages. But again, that was talking to people who I believe hadn't read the book. Most of us have read it or at least read most of it, even if not this chapter. Um, it says thoroughly probed. So what I usually do before agreeing is I give them an assignment or two you know, listen to this podcast, write on this, nothing, you know, horrible, but enough, like, show me you've got some skin in the game. And so we want to really probe, like, are you really willing to go to any lengths? Are you willing to, again, I'm just throwing out examples, weigh and measure everything you eat. Are you willing to forego going to restaurants until you're through the steps? Or, you know, are you willing to make a few phone calls a day, go to certain meetings, um, you know, and then we want to really see because it's sad if someone works, we start working with someone and they leave and they think this program doesn't work. Um, if ever they do leave, we should make it clear in a very loving way. Um, it didn't work because you weren't working it the way it's outlined. We never want someone, maybe in two years, they'll be at bottom and they'll say, oh, I tried that 12-step thing, it didn't work. So we wanna really try to qualify someone. And again, they say, either you're dealing with a man who can and will get well or not. And how do we know he will? Bottom of page 142, he will go to any extreme to do so. That's that's how we can tell. And it says, then we can suggest a definite course of action once we know someone really means business. And top of 143, it says, a certain amount of physical treatment is desirable, even imperative. Um, they say, because the man has to be placed in a physical condition that he can think straight and no longer craves liquor. Um, now, I, I know there's some people here who are also in AA. I'm not one of them, so I don't know how long it takes to um, if someone's just gone on a drinking binge until they can think straight, I have no idea. So, um, but I'll tell you my own story. I was binging 
And my last binge was shoving bagel chips down my throat behind a locked bathroom door right before I went to the meeting. And at the meeting, I got desperate. I just said, like, I can't stop. I took a sponsor and I recovered. So for me, it was maybe the span of an hour and I was able to think straight. Um, So I just say this because sometimes people put arbitrary numbers, in my opinion, on how long someone needs to be absent, X number of hours, X number of days. But the big book says it's when someone can think straight. Okay. So, you know, we, we use our own good judgment on that. Um, It says, if your man accepts your offer, it should be pointed out that physical treatment is but a small part of the picture. Wait, I want to go back because I want to be honest, totally honest here. It says, um, your man will fare better if placed in such physical condition that he can think straight and no longer craves liquor. I think there's a difference between that intense um, physical withdrawal that an alcoholic goes through. And I don't think they're talking about craving like the mental obsession. I think they're talking about like a physical thing that can be possibly dangerous. But again, I know very little about alcoholism, the physical part of alcoholism. Um, I can just tell you again, from my experience, it was probably about a couple of hours and I was able to hear the message. Um, So then it makes clear that the physical treatment is but a small part of the picture. The emphasis should never be on the food plan because I could get the best food plan in the world. My problem was never lack of a good food plan. It was lack of power. So yeah, we get a food plan, um, but without God's help, we can't stick to a food plan. And it says we tell them that though they get the best possible medical attention or the best possible food plan, he should understand that he must undergo a change of heart to get over drink or compulsive eating will require a transformation of thought and attitude, a transformation. God never mends. He creates anew. This is caterpillar to butterfly stuff. This is really amazing stuff. A change of heart, a spiritual experience when God comes in and just rewires our heart so that our priorities are different. That my priority isn't me, myself, and I, but it's God, others, service. And it says, we all had to place recovery above everything. For without recovery, we would have lost both home and business. And what are the things that usually bring people to a bottom? Loss of a business, loss of a job, and loss of home. I don't know if they mean either as in your house gets foreclosed upon, or for me, it what would devastate me would be the relationships in my home getting destroyed. That those are the things that um, recovery has to come first. Now, again, they're not telling us to quit our jobs because there's a whole chapter on two employers and how to act at work. And they're not telling us to abandon our families because there's a whole chapter, the family afterwards. But they're saying, you know, instead of me going out and celebrating with my daughter now, I need to be here at the meeting. You know, it's like first things first. Page 144, they tell us, are you not looking for results rather than methods? So guys, if you get a sponsor who's a good sponsor, and by the way, you get to vet your sponsor. It's not like, 
oh, this person called me or, you know, so this must be the person who God wants me to sponsor. I don't believe that at all. I believe that we should vet our sponsor. Have you gone through these 12 steps? Have you had a transformation? Um, really, like we can check our sponsors out. Um, but then once we find that person, we're looking for results rather than methods. And it tells us um, this book should be read when someone is depressed. Um, if someone is binging and then they stop, as soon as they're able, that's a great time to talk to them. Actually, that's what happened to me now that I think of it, is the moment I was able, and it says, because then realization of his condition may come to him. We want to get people when they're feeling awful. And we don't want to give them that like BS false hope that was given to me so much. Like, oh, don't worry, just keep coming. It'll get better. It didn't get better. In my first six years, it got worse and worse, right? Imagine someone going to, um, I don't know, Cancer Anonymous and being told, just keep coming to Cancer Anonymous meetings and your cancer will get better. It doesn't get better. Yes, it's great that we're all together and can help each other. But again, what we need is mirror, a miracle. So it says we give this person, not false hope, we give them this book, How to Have a Miracle in 12 Steps. And it says, okay, you're thinking that your changed attitude, right? Your understanding, um, plus this book will turn the trick. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It says, if you persevere, the percentage of successes will gratify you percentage. It will never be a hundred percent kind of stinks, but it keeps me humble that I can't get a hundred percent of the people I sponsor recovered. Can't do it. Um, and it also takes a weight off my shoulders. I am not responsible for another person's recovery. I'm responsible for giving her correct love and care and empathy, but I'm not responsible for her recovery. I, I, I can't be, I'm not God. I can't rearrange someone's heart. All I can do is show them where the bus stop is. And it says, meanwhile, we are sure a great deal can be accomplished by the use of the book alone. So I, someone could do this program just by reading this book, except for the fifth step part. But my personal opinion is that God put us together so that we can help each other and that Yes, we don't want to do it alone. First, it's not fun anyway. Um, page 145, they give us a bunch of principles. They say in a business situation, don't bear business tales or criticize associates. That means we're not to be the office gossips. That is a recovery principle. Don't be the office gossip and don't criticize your associates. Now, obviously, if I'm a manager and someone who works for me does something wrong, I have to point out their error. I may be may need to criticize their work, but not them as a person. And it tells us what our big enemies are. Still page 145, resentment, jealousy, envy, frustration, or fear. We know what resentment is. Jealousy is a hostile, being hostile toward a rival or one I believe has an advantage. I mean, it made me think back like to high school, you know, being jealous of the girl who, for me, it was like Rick Hoffman liked this other girl, Gwen, more than he liked me. And I was jealous. 
you know, gosh, how old was I? 14, 13, 14. I was jealous of Gwen because Rick liked her better. I'm in envy, coveting what another person has. If someone has, I don't know, better behaved kids, kids who are more successful, a better job, um, coveting it. And frustration, things aren't going my way. And fear, we all know. So they say those are our enemies. So those are things we should be looking for. And again, when we see them, talk to another person, ask God to remove them, and then turn our thoughts to someone we can help. They also caution us, 145 still, against slyly carrying tails because that can decrease a person's chance of recovery. Slyly carrying, how would we do that? Well, one way might be prayer requests. Oh, you should pray for, you know, Susie Q because she just had an affair and her marriage is crumbling. That's slyly carrying a tail. We don't want to do that. Why does it decrease a person's chance of recovery? Again, a person's chance of recovery is heightened when he or she feels cared about. So we want to make people feel cared about. Um, page 146, it says, we are energetic people. We work hard and we play hard. It says, your man should be on his metal to make good. So that's us. We want to make good. Um, we want to make amends where we've done harm. If it's not natural for me to want to make good, again, I, this is a place where I can pray and act as if. I don't have to wait until I feel a certain way. Um, bottom of 146, I think one of the most important parts of the big book about honesty. It says, Okay, his wife may call saying he's sick, but you think he's drunk. And this is what they say. If he is and is still trying to recover, he will tell you about it, even if it means the loss of his job, for he knows he must be honest if he would live at all. So that means, um, and that actually happened to me once. A sponsor said, if you do such and such, um, I'm going to drop you. And I did such and such. And I told my sponsor, because it is better to be honest and without a sponsor than honest and have a sponsor. Because again, all our sponsor can do is point us to the bus stop. But if we're not, if we don't have the fare to get on the bus and honesty is the fare, we're never going to get where we want to go. So honesty, he knows he must be honest if he would live it all, even if it means the loss of a job. And I did once go on a job interview. I was very early on in recovery, maybe a month or so, couple, a few less than six months. And I'd been fired from my previous job because I just took off so much time and I was a horrible employee. And they asked me what happened in your last job. And I said, I, I quit. And I remembered about honesty. I called up the guy who did the interview and said, I wasn't honest, the reason I left my last job is I was fired um, because I knew I had to be honest if I would live at all. Um, and I did get the job, but I don't even think that's the point. I think the point is that I didn't go out and eat compulsively. Um, page 147, they tell us, if we're conscientiously following the program of recovery, we can go anywhere business may call us. So that's an if then, if we're following this program, then we can go anywhere we have to. But I would say early on, generally, um, 
we have to protect our abstinence. And at the beginning, I remember being at work and there was a pizza party and I just ate my meal by myself in the back room. At the beginning, I couldn't do it. So we need to know what our limits and temptations are, um, but to realize there will come a point where we can go grocery shopping and not even know where the candy aisle in the store is because we don't care. Um, that is a promise of this program that we're placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. And then they talk to the employer about what if he stumbles once he starts working this program? And I think part of it applies to a sponsor and part of it is for an employer only. Um, it says, if you are sure he doesn't mean business, then discharge him. Um, but if you think he's doing his utmost, you may wish to give him another chance. Now they tell the employer, but you're under no obligation to do so. I think as a sponsor, if someone is really doing his or her utmost, I do have an obligation to keep helping this person. It took me six and a half years to get better. I'm not gonna be so arrogant as to say, oh, you, you, know, you broke your abstinence once, well, even though you're doing everything I tell you, forget it. I'm not sponsoring you anymore. Um, I don't think that's the right thing to do. And besides in one of the forwards, it says 25% um, of the original AAs failed at first. So 25%, that's one in four people got drunk, but then ultimately recovered. And I was one of that those 25%. Um, page 148, again, it says, if a person wants to stop, he should be afforded a real chance. So that's what we want to give someone. Again, correct information and love. And bottom of 149, a whole bunch of recovery principles. It says, the right sort of man, the kind who recovers, won't want this sort of thing, won't want to be made a favorite. So we should look at that at work. We don't need to be the boss's favorite. Um, I mean, I need to be my husband's favorite, but I really don't need to be anyone else's favorite. It says, too, he will not impose. We don't impose on people. We don't ask them to just forgive us again and again. We should just stop doing the wrong thing again and again. Um, we don't ask people to do things for us that we could do for ourselves and it says, the third thing here, he will work like the devil. Um, I am assuming what they mean is the devil works really, really hard. So it means like we work hard. And then it says, and he will thank you to his dying day. So yes, thank the employer, grateful to an employer, grateful to our families who put up with us, grateful to our sponsors. But again, um, I think the main thing, of course, is grateful to God. And I want to say a word about the gratitude list that a lot of us do. A gratitude list is not the same thing as thanking God. I could write a list, but that has nothing to do with my relationship with God. God is interested in my relationship with him. He wants me to thank him. So I do my gratitude list. I do it on my app. And then I stop and I say, God, Thank you for this. Thank you that we were in this new house safely. Thank you that after a week of insomnia, I got a good night's sleep. You know, now it'll be, thank you that my daughter got into University of Alabama. Like I thank him. Um, so I think that's important. And then finally on one page 150, it talks about um, men who've recovered. And it says they have a new attitude. They've been saved from a living death. 
always I have to remember, I didn't save myself. God rescued me and put people in my path to help. Um, but God rescued me. I didn't save myself. And then he says, I've enjoyed every moment spent in getting them straightened out and helping people. Our joy returns to us. And I have to say, I don't enjoy every single sponsee call, but that's okay. Um, the times I don't, you know, I get credit for self-sacrifice. It's fine, but I enjoy it. I enjoy this work. And before there was no joy, there was just sadness and numbness and being hyped up on stuff. But this is our life now. We get to enjoy things. We get to enjoy being of use to God and our fellows. That is one of the most magnificent promises here. And with that, I pass. Thank you.